0: This is fucking ridiculous that we're having this conversation right now. Welcome to The Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, the Deacon of Discord, Thomas Smiley. And we're here, as always, to talk about Legacy.
1: Yeah, I joined probably 10 Discord channels this week trying to promote the podcast. I even signed up for a Reddit account. We haven't really done much promotion, but we've had so many more people listening to us, and we are super thankful.
0: So, yeah, it seems like you're pretty active in the uh, the Discords, at least the ones that you invited me to. I have joined Discord three times now for, like, one day each, and I always just give up on it.
1: Yeah, there are a few that I'm a little bit more active in, like the Stoneforge Discord. I got invited to pretty early on, and when the four-color deck was sort of still playable, I know that I did a lot of work in there, and... I made a few posts in the Infect Discord just to see what other people's thoughts and ideas were on certain deck ideas, and since we're really early in the format and we're doing content, a lot of people wanted to know what I thought about things.
0: Bro, it kind of makes me sad. Like, it's cool everyone's using Discord, but I actually logged into the Source today for the first time in a while just to, like, read what people were saying about some of these decks we're going to be talking about today, and it was, like, less activity than I ever recall seeing there.
1: Yeah, I logged back into the source to make a few posts in certain forums, too. And it seems like the source has been supplanted by Discord. People like the live chat aspect more than the old sort of forum base of the source. And I miss it. I miss the source. Discord gets really clunky sometimes, and navigation is, um, is kind of weak. If you want to see something and you haven't logged in in a while... There's a lot of scrolling, and a lot of the posts aren't really on topic.
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh, I really do miss the source. It was like a tradition, you know? I learned legacy reading the source.
1: Yeah, I I miss it. But I, I think we're in a spot now where it's not really going to end up coming back. The old forums have really just sort of faded away. There's different technology that people use now to communicate.
0: Fucking kids these days, right?
1: Yeah, fucking kids in their Facebook And their Twitter space.
0: Bro, I've been playing old school a lot this week. And one thing that always cracks me up is uh, Rich Shea calls it the Facebook still.
1: The Facebook.
0: Which is fucking awesome.
1: You know, Rich Shea is awesome. He is the typical old man magic player.
0: It's a national treasure.
1: He is. He is.
0: So, yeah, this episode, I think we we have two goals in mind. We want to talk about the challenge results from the most recent challenge, just uh, yesterday. And also, then we want to do something new, which is our metagame predictions for the Pro Tour. We each picked our top 10 decks, and yeah, we're going to compare, see how those line up.
1: We have a Legacy Pro Tour, and I am so excited. We get to watch the world's best players take a format that people think is wide open and crunch it down to the three or four best decks that will get played over and over again.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy, man.
1: Now, I don't know about you, but when I was going through and making my top ten, I feel like ten is a stretch. Like, I I found it a struggle to fill out my last few spots, because I feel like... The meta is going to be very concentrated in the top few
0: okay so you first messaged me about this earlier and said that you were having trouble with 10 and i was like man what is he talking about and then when i reviewed it today in light of the recent metagame changes i actually had the same problem because i sort of had three epics there was the top three then there were the next four and then there was a block of like seven or eight decks so I had to determine which of those decks that I really didn't like were going to end up in the top 10.
1: Yeah, and I think you have, to, you have to sort of put your view through the eyes of a pro player, and not just a pro player, but a team of pro players where a lot of the choices that might be a little bit more divergent from what the top decks are are less likely to get a team to give you the okay to play it.
0: Exactly. And that's tough, man. Like, we can get to this later. If you want to just start with the challenge now? Yeah, let's do it. Alright, so we had a uh, challenge on MTGO yesterday, and honestly, what I expected going into this challenge was nothing. I expected to see the exact same decks as last week. I expected no one to bring out any tech at all, right? Because if you're a Pro Tour player, you don't want to spoil, you know, your list or whatever.
1: Okay, well... I don't think that any pro players are gonna play in a challenge. First off, if you are doing a bunch of testing online, you are joining leagues and you are dropping when you get to four zero. If you get to four zero, since challenges publish lists from thirty two up, it doesn't make sense for you to play in a challenge because you don't want your list to be published before this pro tour. So, all of the tech. If there were teams that were really going hard on legacy to build something or tune something that isn't standard, we're not going to see it until the Pro Tour. So none of the challenge decks, I believe, are new innovations for the Pro Tour.
0: So I have to disagree because of the list that won the challenge, which is Grixis Control. This isn't just your typical Grixis Control list that we've been seeing around. This Grixis control list had a full set of him to Turax and no spot discard throughout the main deck or the sideboard.
1: Okay, so the list that won did not have a full set of him. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it played him over what other people were playing as Thoughtseize, but this is a very standard Grixis control deck, and I don't think this was new at all. I'd seen this very list in 5 O's that were published before, I don't think this is new tech, and I don't believe it's a pro player who is testing for the Pro Tour. I think this deck is new to some people, but I've played against this deck online a few times.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so it had three Hymn to Turok's, and both Liliana's main, uh, Last Hope and Liliana of the Veil, two Kolagons Commands, and the Creature Suite was four Baleful Strix, four Snapcaster Mage, two Gurmag Anglers. And to be honest, I played against this list, or approximately this list, a bunch online, but I kind of thought I was on the wrong side of Variance. Uh, I was playing Infect, so I was never happy to see this deck. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that every time that I played them, they had either a Thoughtseize or... Yeah, typically a Thoughtseize, not usually Inquisition. But that really struck me as something new here.
1: Yeah, so... This this almost exact list, if you replace him with Nazis, i had seen quite a bit online. And I could even see this deck stretching to scale back on the Red Splash and play a few more basics and make those bolts another Fatal Push and another Edict along with something else.
0: Yeah, so honestly, that's what I kind of expected to see. And there's another list up here, I think it's seventh place, that's a similar deck to this. Except there's a few differences. One of them is the mana base. This deck, the first place deck, has the typical pile build with one island and one mountain. And then eight dual lands. This has two bad lands. You don't have to play the green now, so you you get a little more stability in your dual lands. But the other list actually had two islands, two swamps, and a mountain. And then that small smattering of dual lands, like two seas, one Vulk, one Badlands. And that's 21 total lands. This is 20 total lands. Obviously, they're playing more lands as a concession to the Delver decks than the more Wastelands in this format in general. But I'm curious which mana base you think is better, because, you know, Stifle, Wasteland, these basic lands can be vulnerable sometimes. You know, if you fetch out an island and a swamp, and then you get stifled off of ever-fetching red, it can be a problem.
1: It can be, but I believe having the basic land is more important than exposing yourself to stifle. I think that rug Delver is on the downswing, and people are realizing that stifle isn't really where you want to be. But the main difference that I see, other than the mana base, between the first and the seventh place deck is the Flusterstorm's main deck. And I think the deck that finished 7th correctly identified what the big bad of the format is, and I would rather play this deck than the first place deck.
0: Yeah, I see where you're going with that, and that does make a lot of sense to me. Four Strix is is really pretty terrifying if you're thinking about bringing Delver, right?
1: Yeah, if if you think about Delver variants and if we group Infect sort of into that Delver variant, you have a almost unremovable threat without putting yourself significantly behind. You can fork bolt it, you can bolt it, you can trade one of your creatures with it to get it off the board. But having it be a cantrip that you have to answer in a matchup where you're trying to use all of your resources to win from the Delver side really puts you a few steps behind where you want to be.
0: Yeah, and that's what I feel like has been missing from this metagame up to this point is, like, the Baleful strict stack, right? Like, we've seen it pop up, but this feels like we're here to stay.
1: When I've been playing my matches online, Baleful Strix decks have been 100% the ones that I have wanted to not play against. And it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that we see this deck put multiple versions of itself into top 8. I think that this deck is extremely strong. And I think if you look at the spell suite, the multiple cantrip packages, Brainstorm or Ponder slash Preordain, when you take a look at what a very good magic player wants to do, they want to maximize the number of decisions that they can make per game. And having Brainstorm and Ponder slash Preordain allows them to gain an edge in matchups by making better decisions than their opponent. I, I think... That when we start to talk about our top ten, we're gonna see a huge skew toward the decks that have multiple cantrips, and some of them that might be running three.
0: Yep. Yeah. Really quickly, the Alpine Moon in the sideboard. What do you think that's about?
1: Okay, so we see it in the first place deck list. That was the one that lacked basics, it only had two. Yep. Yeah. And I see that as a concession to Wasteland dark depths and on a lesser extent ink moth nexus i don't believe that this deck needs any extra infect hate but those are those are the lands that i am that i am saying that that this card is in the sideboard for
0: so what i think it's actually there for uh, like the primary concern is actually Baseju. okay when we were talking on the the blade facebook group the other day uh, one thing that Jeremy mentioned was that he played four Wastelands in blue-white because of the importance of dealing with Besageu, And if he went to blue-white-red, he wouldn't have been able to play that number of Wastelands. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about is Besageu. It looks like the Sneak and Show decks in the challenge were only running one typically. Yep. But it is a pretty big hole in this, this deck's plan against Sneak and Show.
1: It is, and there are lots of decks that have a very big hole when it comes to that which i think is going to be important when we start to talk about our top 10
0: yeah definitely so you want to move on to uh well the number two deck in the challenge was a Lurin. i think we can safely skip that
1: yeah i think i think when we're talking about a challenge the week before pro tour getting too much into the analysis of this isn't really worth it because whatever happens this weekend is going to set the format before Richmond. It doesn't matter what we're going to see in the challenges. It doesn't matter what we're going to see in the smaller paper tournaments leading up to Richmond. It is what happens in this weekend's Legacy Pro Tour that is going to define where the format is going to go. And I think we can give you a pretty good idea of where it's going to be when we get to the Pro Tour, but the results are going to shape everything going forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the other big decks that we see really putting up numbers in this challenge are Miracles with seven total finishes. There are two Rug Delver decks, three total Grixis Control decks, three Chalice decks. And if you want to discuss any of those specifically.
1: So I think that going into the Pro Tour weekend, we're going to see an underrepresentation of Chalice decks. I don't think that where you want to be. As a skilled magic player, is playing a deck that's at the mercy of your opening hand.
0: Does this have anything to do with you playing a league with Eldrazi post?
1: I played two leagues with Eldrazi post this week. I'm just, I'm just never ever going to pick that deck up again. I wanted to see what the what the deal was with the deck. It won the classic. It put multiple people into the top sixteen of the next classic and i know i only played two leagues with the deck so we're talking about 10 matches but it felt so bad that i'm never going to pick that deck up again it had a terrible matchup against many of the top decks and you are really at the mercy of your opening hand where if your first chalice or trinisphere doesn't stick then you are probably going to lose Your mana base is super weak to Wasteland, and you have very little interaction to actually deal with these combo decks if your first lock piece doesn't stick. I felt like the deck didn't have a lot of ways to leverage play skill. It was slam all your cards on the table and hope it sticks, and the mana base wasn't consistent enough for me to want to play it. Now, if Miracles ends up being one of the top decks, then sure, I can see slamming this because it's very hard to deal with from the Miracle side, but there are a few cards that I felt like the deck just couldn't beat. I played against a Miracle's deck where they resolved the back-to-basics, and I, I felt like I had no outs to it. And maybe it was just the matchups that I played, but I have, in my opinion, never played a worse legacy deck than that Eldrazi post deck.
0: Yeah, I agree. When the Eldrazi first came out of the Gatewatch or whatever that set was, I brought uh like a white build of Eldrazi, like an Eldrazi taxes, you know, with Thoughtnots and Smashers and Displacers mm-hmm. to our local for a couple weeks, and I was really trying to tune the list and try to find out if there was something there. I was playing like a little different than what you typically see. I was playing like Mox Diamonds and it was just very boring for me, honestly. I felt like I was at the mercy of my opening hands. I had to keep some hands, you know, just based on probability math that, that just wouldn't pan out. And it was a very frustrating experience for, you know, someone who's just playing Brainstorm.
1: Yeah, I felt, I felt like there weren't any matchups that I just really wanted to jam into. You feel like, all right, you have four Chalices, you have trinospheres You have Soul Lands. You probably want to get matched up against Delver or Storm. Now, I didn't play against Storm. Storm is probably a great matchup for the deck. But the Delver matchup seemed 50-50, and it seemed Force of Will dependent. And if you're going to run a deck that is Force of Will dependent, just play Belcher, because if they don't have it, then you just win. Instead of, all right, you stuck a lock piece, they still have outs to it. True Name Nemesis was a house against the deck. Wasteland was a house against the deck. Sneak Attack and Show and Tell was a house against the deck. And Back to Basics seemed unbeatable. So I was looking through the metagame and where I thought my positive matchups would be with that deck, and I didn't really like any of them.
0: Yeah, it's the kind of deck where if you're playing it, it feels awful, but when you're playing against it, you always imagine that they have it, right? They have everything. When you're looking at your opening hand, it's like, okay, how do I beat a turn one Chalice, turn two Trinisphere, turn three Thought Knot? And when you're actually playing the deck, you're looking at these hands that are like, oh, God, three Iogans, what am I going to do?
1: Yeah, or three or two City of Traders. Oh, yeah. Where, where you have those hands that you look at, and you're just like, all right, if they have a Force, I'm dead. If they have a Wasteland, I'm dead. And you look at your hand with 4 and 5 casting cost spells, and you're wishing that you were the Eldrazi Stompy build that could do more on less mana. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, we spent, uh, I think, enough time on Eldrazi for now. Do you want to just jump right into our top 10?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Now, you have a sort of disclaimer that you want to state right now.
0: All right, so these lists that we've made reflect a couple of realities that we're used to thinking about and maybe some that we're not normally thinking about with top-level Magic events. So the first of these is the players, and the players that have qualified for the Pro Tour specifically. They have a tendency toward blue-based control decks, as you kind of mentioned earlier. If all else is equal, they'll want to play the blue deck, and that's especially true in Legacy, where you have Brainstorm, you have Ponder, You have preordained Force of Will. These cards really appeal to players who can leverage complex decision trees.
1: I I don't think that it is just blue-based control. I think that cards that reduce variance and allow for more decisions, whether it be combo, tempo, or control, are decks that lend themselves more to players who are very good.
0: Absolutely, yeah, just blue beige decks in general, I'd say. So, another point is card availability. It's not something that we normally talk about or think about, but recently on Twitter, our friend Dominic pointed out to us that it's kind of a blind spot for us. And Tabernacles, I don't know, I haven't gone on the open market and tried to buy one recently, but they're well over a grand, I believe. And I have to think that there are some people who will just straight rule out a deck like lands before even testing it, you know, because subconsciously they don't want to deal with getting the Tabernacle.
1: Now, for, for a regular Legacy player, sure.
0: Yeah, so because of the stakes of the Pro Tour and the team format where you have three people for every one Legacy deck that you need, I really don't expect anyone to be priced out of any Tier 1 decks. For example, sometimes at these SCGs you'll see, like, in the early rounds, some Burn decks or some other budget choices like that. I don't expect to see anyone playing something like Burn unless they truly believe it's the right metagame call.
1: Yeah, there will be no budget decks. And one of the things that it comes down to when we're talking about people who are playing on the Pro Tour is their social network is much, much larger than the average player who's going to a legacy FNM if there is a person who's playing on the pro tour that has a certain number of followers on Twitter or wherever, and they need some specific cards, they're going to find it much easier to get through a sponsor or through friends borrowing than a regular person would.
0: So the concession that I was more speaking to was, I don't feel like, lands let's say that you think that lands is the best position deck i feel like that would need to be something that you had some practice with like you couldn't pick it up one week in advance and be playing it at the pro tour that week
1: sure and i don't think any legacy player who's going to be playing in the pro tour has a week of practice with their deck people were starting two three months out now obviously the death right banning's shook that up a little bit their testing up until the banning would be largely irrelevant if they thought the meta was going to shift but the people who are playing on the pro tour are not just picking up a deck playing a few leagues with it and then rolling in they are communicating with testing teams and doing a lot more work than you or i would realize
0: but what if you're somebody like say uh wilson hunter who just qualified this week
1: Wilson still probably played as much Legacy as some of the people who are testing Legacy to play.
0: Oh, I don't, I don't mean Wilson specifically. I have no doubts he's tested enough Legacy. I just mean not everyone qualified. Not everyone knew that they were qualified three months ago.
1: Sure, but are those people going to be playing Legacy? If, if they're going to be on a team where they are the most experienced Legacy player a lot of those legacy decks that take a ton of practice are probably going to be off the menu. But if they are the most experienced legacy player, their team probably isn't going to do very well.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of the same Storm problem that we've talked about before, where you know you need to put in a lot of reps. You need to have spent a lot of time thinking about Storm and playing Storm in the past. Just because it's, you think it might be well-positioned, you can't just pick it up that week, right? And that's kind of the same thing with lands, I, I assume.
1: Now I think, I think the land's learning curve is a little bit less steep than the ANT or TES learning curve.
0: Agreed. And actually, this kind of segues into our list because I have an honorable mention going to the macro archetype of Storm, the ANT decks and the Test decks. I do believe that if we had infinite time to prepare for this tournament, that it would have made the top ten. But because of the realities of limited testing time since the death rate ban, I don't think enough people are going to pick the deck up.
1: Now, I agree with you, but I think you're underestimating the caliber of player that is going to be playing in the Pro Tour. I think that there are many people who felt like if Ant was going to be the best positioned deck, would grind through as many matchups as they could and be prepared in time for the tournament.
0: Interesting. So you think that there will be a decent number of ant players, or you don't think it's well positioned?
1: No, I don't think that enough people will do that. I think people are going to look at this metagame, and they're going to see some very big targets. And there are some much easier combo decks that are just as powerful, where you have to know less lines and less interaction. There are less points of interaction to determine... That are going to lead themselves to be a better pickup for very good players.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. So the other honorable mention that I have on my list is Steel Stompy, and the reason I put it there is because I feel like the deck is pretty well positioned, but I don't feel like necessarily anyone's really putting the work for it.
1: I I don't I don't think that deck is good, and I think nobody's going to play it in the team Grand Prix in Toronto. Uh, We played against Eric Froelich and Ben Stark and uh, Paulo in round one. And Eric was playing Legacy and he was playing Steel Stompy. And they didn't communicate about their deck choices before they rolled into the event. And Paulo was talking about him showing up with that. And had made a mention in the last Pro Points podcast that if they had talked about the decks, he most certainly would not have showed up with Steel Stompy. Now they did well they did well in the Grand Prix, but I believe I believe Eric finished two and seven on, on it during day one. I didn't follow them during day two, but they ended up taking a round one loss to us basically because their legacy player chose to play Steel Stompy. That's a deck I don't think it's very well positioned.
0: So I'm basing this on that I think that it is the deck Between Eldrazi Stompy and Steel Stompy, I think it's actually the deck with more play to it. And that's why I was giving it an honorable mention, because I do have Eldrazi in my top 10 at number 10.
1: Okay, so you have more play with the deck. It plays out sort of like Modern Affinity, but you do not have any draw fixing or ways to recover when you are behind. That deck is great if you can... Jam a chalice and stay ahead the whole game?
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that, and you're probably right. I have gone 0-2 versus it online, so maybe I have a heightened sense of appreciation for it. But anyway, to the lists, I guess, I kind of already spoiled my number 10 is Eldrazi, and it looks like this doesn't make your list at all.
1: It doesn't, in my opinion. Eldrazi is one of those decks that doesn't reward you for having a high play skill the chalice based decks have less decisions to make than the blue based cantrip decks and while the eldrazi might be powerful i don't think that enough people are going to like the matchups with what i think are going to be the top decks
0: all right so hear me out for a second i just want to think this through Let's start here. How many of these teams do you think have legacy specialists or people who have played, you know, a significant amount of legacy? Like I would count, for example, like a Reed Duke as, as a legacy specialist. You know, even though he's playing a lot of other formats, he's obviously put in the time, right?
1: 90%.
0: 90%. Interesting. I was thinking it was more like 60.
1: Now, if you're counting somebody who is just an excellent player that plays a bit of legacy, I, I would count them as... If you take a top third pro tour player and put them in the legacy seat with enough time testing, they're going to be better than a lot of the people that we consider legacy specialists. I think that term really gets thrown around a lot where a lot of the top players don't play a ton of legacy because it's not a format that is financially rewarding. There are less tournaments And Standard and Modern are a lot more important for somebody who's playing every week in a big event. But if you take that person and you incentivize them to learn and play Legacy, they're going to play that deck that they choose a lot better than a lot of people that play Legacy on a routine basis, just because of their skill in the game.
0: Yeah, but you're not playing against people who play Legacy on a routine basis. You're playing against other pro tour players. So do you think that somebody could play a Delver at a more competent level or, you know, a Miracles at a more competent level than an average pro tour player who was seasoned with Miracles?
1: No, I I don't think the average person is going to be able to play it as well as the average pro tour player who's seasoned with it. I think if you take a Jacob Wilson and hand them Delver, uh, they are going to win more often than somebody who you would consider the Delver expert that you know
0: oh i agree with you on that that that's sort of a different question so the question i'm asking is you're just you know random person who qualifies for this pro tour are you confident playing a blue mirror in the pro tour and thinking that you have some sort of edge there
1: now here's the thing when it comes to team events right you as a random player who qualified who's like pugging their team (laughs) you're in a really bad spot already right? Yeah. It doesn't matter because even if you go on a heater and you finish 11 and whatever, you still have two people that didn't get picked up from another team that you're playing with that have to do the same thing. So if you look at the edges that you are going to lose across the board by being a player who just squeaked in, the team format is way worse for you than the individual format.
0: Absolutely, I I agree.
1: So are you saying that there are going to be enough people who just think that they're not good enough to cast Brainstorm that pick up Eldrazi and just hope to get lucky?
0: Well, I think that if you're that random pug that you you mentioned, I love that, that descriptor, by the way. If you're the random pug, then your team might be pressuring you to play a higher variance deck. Because you you sort of need to you know get your edges where you can, or maybe try to roll the dice, right? And I think that's sort of the difference between my list and your list is I have a couple of these higher variance decks on my list because I'm anticipating. I think this is like one of the biggest Pro Tours ever. I think there's I I, I want to say I heard like 600 players as opposed to a typical number, which is more like 400.
1: Okay, but really it's 200. So if we're specifically talking about Legacy there are 200 people playing Legacy.
0: Agreed. But I guess this goes back to where you thought that there were 90% people who were familiar with the format, and I thought it was more like 60%.
1: Okay, so let's say there are 200 people playing Legacy. I think for the people who are playing in the Legacy seat at this Pro Tour, 180 being familiar with the format is very reasonable. That means there's going to be 20 people that are playing Legacy that don't feel comfortable doing that.
0: And so what what deck do you think that those people will play? Because that's one-tenth of the field.
1: Okay, so I believe when we get to our top ten list that those people are going to be playing one of the decks that I have near the top.
0: Interesting, okay. All right, so let's go to your number ten then.
1: Okay, so I had a very hard time Digging through what I thought were going to be the top 10 decks. Because once I got to number 9, I felt like I had the meta sort of hammered out. I thought that most people were going to play a deck that was 9 through 1. And to play something that was outside of what my 9 through 1 were was a real stretch. Now, I think that there are some teams that are going to come up with a bug mid-range deck that attacks the format in a different direction. I think that a deck with Noble Hierarch and Leovold is something that you can work in the bug colors. It gives you access to Strix, Snapcaster, Thoughtseize, Edict, Him, if you want it, and then the bug Planeswalker package. I think that if I was attacking the meta from a place that had more time to test, and I was trying to hone in on what I would want to play to beat what I think the top decks are, that bug mid-range is going to be played. So I have bug mid-range at number 10, and this is banking on the fact that I feel like a tuned version of this deck attacks the meta in a way that I think is very powerful, and I think that somebody is going to find a build, and it is going to see play by a few teams.
0: Okay, I like that thinking. So... Three days ago when we started this list, I actually had Blue-Black X mid-range as my second top deck. And at the time it was like a mashup of Grixis and Bug because I've seen pretty much equal representation of the two online. And the way that I was thinking was that Grixis had sort of just won that argument at this point. And so I didn't include Bug on my list at all. But that's a pretty convincing argument that
1: you're making. Okay, so what do you have for number nine?
0: so we both have at number nine the lands deck i feel like there are some dedicated lands pilots out there and if i had a team for this pro tour and i had a dedicated lands pilot i would 100% have them be playing legacy and playing lands i feel like it is certainly well positioned i feel like there are a few people who have really explored the archetype but as you mentioned on an earlier cast when you look at, like, the, the top win percentage of people playing Legacy uh, at the Grand Prix level over the last few years, and you look at, like, the top 20 pilots, there's, like, six or seven dedicated lands people up there. It's just, the deck does really well.
1: I, I agree with you, and that's the reason why I made my list. However, there is a gaping hole where if we took one deck away from my list, I think lands would move up quite a bit. I think we would see a lot more people picking it up. At the last Legacy Grand Prix, you saw people like Sam Black and LSV pick up lands to play. Because when we were thinking about that format, the old Grixis Delver format, lands was a much better choice for the metagame than I believe it is now.
0: Interesting. And why is that? Do you want to get into that now?
1: Well, I think that once we get further through our lists, we'll start to talk about that sort of black hole that is warping everything else.
0: Okay, so then you want to move on to number 8, which we also have the same, and I swear to God we didn't work together on this at all. We did not. Uh, Number 8, we both have the Infect deck that we've been playing so much lately. I had it as high as number 5 at some points leading up to this, but with the emergence of the, the Grixis control deck as a serious player, this deck really just gets eaten alive by that deck and that's enough to bring it down to number eight in my opinion
1: i i agree with you sitting across the table from grixis with infect is disheartening it is 100 percent the deck's worst matchup and i feel like the grixis based decks have been gaining a bunch of steam going into it i feel like infect plays quite a bit like delver only you have the combo kill finish and it is stronger against decks that don't have baleful stricks and all of the Grixis colored removal. If I was going into this pro tour, I know that there are going to be people that bring infect, but the amount of Grixis that I expect to see would make me not want to play it.
0: Absolutely. All right, so I think we can move on. I think we've set our piece with infect. My number seven is a deck that you don't have at all and that's black red reanimator. And this is a nod to a couple of things. It's a nod to the high variance decks that I expect people to be picking up a little more than you do. And it's also a nod to the prevalence of show and tell that we expect to see in this tournament.
1: We, we have seen quite a bit of that deck, but we haven't seen black red do much at all. Black red is a deck that is probably going to have one of the lowest win percentages of all of the decks that we've talked about. And, it would take a lot of convincing to bring a deck that is that fragile to a Pro Tour.
0: Yeah, so I kind of agree with you, but I think that there's going to be some people, 30% more than you do, that aren't in their right mind, that are pretty confused with this meta and are opting for a higher variance deck. And we've kind of hashed that out a couple times already, so we don't need to get into it again.
1: Yeah, I just I don't think that you end up qualifying for the Pro Tour with that attitude.
0: Well, I don't think you end up qualifying for the Pro Tour playing Legacy or knowing anything about Legacy necessarily in the majority of cases, right? So I feel like there's going to be such a surplus of these standard and modern players that are friends with each other and just say, hey, which one of us is going to play Legacy?
1: Okay. All right. So anyway,
0: we, we can move on from that. We've had your number seven.
1: My number seven.
0: Which was actually my number six.
1: Is Grixis Delver. And I think that win percentage-wise, this deck should be higher up, all right? Grixis Delver is still very, very good. And we are still waiting on a tuned list. People are still all over the place on their threat package, on what spells to play in the flex spots, whether or not you want to go Stifle or no Stifle. And pros getting ready for this pro tour are going to figure out the build that attacks the metagame the best. This would be one of the decks that I would consider playing going into this tournament. It has the tools to fight against the top decks, and I think that this should pass the other Delver deck that I have on my list. But I don't think enough people are going to realize that before the Pro Tour.
0: So I 100% agree with you. If I were forced to... Not forced to, I'd love to play in this Pro Tour. But if I were playing in this Pro Tour... I would seriously be considering Grixis Delver, and I do think that it should be above Rug, if not for the metagame alterations we've seen very recently, kind of make Stifle a better card. So I'm assuming that these Grixis Delver decks aren't playing Stifle, and I kind of included Death's Shadow in my Grixis as well, because it's basically the same deck, right? And I think that there's a lot of ways you can build it. We saw Jonathan Sukenik, uh building it with the four True Names last week. I think True Name is a great threat against the packages we've seen recently, with the exception of the Grixis deck, which has popped up, that has two main deck Edicts, typically. Yep. And before that, I think that this deck was my dark horse to... I actually had this ranked above Rug Delver previously.
1: Well, I think if we're talking about win percentage and what we thought that would win, I would have this ab- above rug Delver. But I think that there are enough people who believe that having the blowout percentage of Rug with Stifle and all of the soft counters are going to make that a more played deck.
0: I agree. So you want to move on to your number six, which is my number five, which is Death and Taxes.
1: Yeah, I think Death and Taxes fills a lot of the same spots that you were talking about with Lands Pilots, where if we look at the people who have the highest win percentage in Legacy playing in competitive level events, Death and Taxes Pilots are very high up there. And I think there are a lot of Europeans that have a ton of practice with the deck and are tuned in to the meta to adjust enough to be able to perform with it. Now... I don't think a lot of the players who you think are the standard or modern player would go ahead and pick up Death and Taxes. But I think there are enough people who have played it for a long enough time and are able to adjust to a high enough level that will bring it. And if we're expecting a field of Delver, then that would be a reasonable choice to bring.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I actually do think that some of the standard and modern players, and this is actually based on a couple conversations I've had, they actually do feel a little more comfortable with death and taxes. I'm not, I'm really not sure what the reason for that is, but I have heard a few conversations where people have elected to put people on death and taxes for that reason.
1: Okay. So that was your number five?
0: That is my number five, correct. So your number five is where we start to truly diverge in our list because this is actually my number one, and this is Miracles.
1: Now – I do not think that Miracles is where you want to be in this meta. I think that not having a reliable answer to besage you, I think that not having a quick enough clock with a lot of the Miracles builds that we have been seeing is a place where I wouldn't want to be for a pro tour. You never get easy wins, and without the top, the deck is just not the same. So I feel like a lot of people who would have played Miracles in the past are going to move to a different deck that has a quicker clock and is a little bit better positioned to fight the field. I feel like Terminus is kind of at a low with how effective it is. And if Terminus was a better card right now, I could see Miracles moving up. But I don't think Miracles is where I want to be going into this Pro Tour.
0: Interesting. So I have it as my top deck because I feel like it doesn't have severely negative matchups against any of the top decks and it affords that sort of play versatility that we discussed where you can outplay people and it's really a deck that you can sort of form in a lot of ways like what we're calling miracles right now could have zero monastery mentors or could have three it could have two total planeswalkers that are both jaces, or it could have three Jaces, two Teferis, and a Keranos. We've seen builds that are all over the place. It's very customizable right now, and it seems like it's winning in all its different permutations. So you can really sort of shape it to your play patterns, and you know what you expect to see in the metagame is the best. You can have main deck engineered explosives, for example. Uh, you could have back-to-basics, two of them in your main deck. And I feel like there's a lot of room to make meta calls there.
1: Sure, you can make a lot of meta calls. But if you want to make meta calls in a Pro Tour and you're wrong about the meta, you're going to get burned. I feel like Miracles has a bad, an actively bad matchup against what I think are going to be the two most popular decks. And I wouldn't want to bring Miracles to a tournament where I would have to fight against its potentially worst matchups often.
0: Yeah, so I certainly wouldn't want to play Miracles in this Pro Tour, but this is kind of like you know, what we think will be showing up rather than what we think will do well. If it were what we think would do well, I would absolutely have it down there where you have it.
1: But for somebody to come with that deck to the Pro Tour, they have to think that it's going to do well. And when I take a look at Miracles and I take a look at just a cursory glance of what I think are going to be the top decks, bad matchup number one, bad matchup number two, I'm not going to play that deck.
0: You want to move on to our number four, which we share in common? Yeah. So that is Rugged Delver.
1: There are so many micro decisions to make with Rugged Delver that all completely matter to your overall win percentage that I think that quite a few professional players are going to lend themselves to playing this deck because of its ability to outplay your opponent and win off of very very small margins now i don't think for the average pilot rug delver is a great choice i don't but i think for a lot of people who are going to be playing in the legacy seat there are lots of small edges that you can get by playing a deck like this that it is going to show up quite a bit
0: yeah so you mentioned micro decisions and that's exactly how I feel about this deck. I feel like every decision is a micro-decision, and you're so desperate to keep the game in that turn one, turn two phase, and sometimes they just slip away from you. And that's what I found playing rug Delver recently. It's so frustrating, right? And this has always been the case playing rug Delver, I guess. You, you can't let them escape from that bubble. And there are some decks that, that do a good job of breaking out from that. And looking at our predicted top tens, there's really not a lot of that, which is actually why I have Rug at four instead of, you know, previously I had it around six. But I feel like there is a risk there that the metagame just goes a little bigger than you and isn't as vulnerable to what Rug's bringing.
1: But if the meta goes a little bigger than you, that plays into Rug's game.
0: Well, so if it goes a lot bigger than you, that plays way into Rug's game, right? But a little bigger than you, I think that there's a space there where you can get exploited. Like Grixis Delver, for example.
1: I agree with you. I think Grixis is the better Delver deck. But I think that there are a lot of people that are not going to be willing to take a risk to play Grixis when its performance hasn't been as positive as Rugs. that will lead more teams to want to play rug Delver. And the sort of old memory of rug Delver being a dominant deck is going to be in the minds of a lot of teams. And I believe that there are quite a few that are still going to show up with it.
0: Interesting. So yeah, that's basically why I have it at number four. So your number three deck is something that didn't make my list at all. So do you want to explain what you're thinking there?
1: Yeah. So my number three deck is blue-white or blue-white with red in the sideboard, Stoneblade. I feel that this deck is more positive against the field than miracles. I think the decks play out very similarly. And I think that Blue-White Stoneblade actually has better matchups against the top deck than Miracles does. I think that we've seen through the paper tournaments leading up through now, the Stoneblade shell being able to adapt to a Miracles-like game, but perform better. And I think that Blue-White Stoneblade is going to be the third most played deck It has a very good mana base. Stoneforge Mystic is able to provide a clock versus combo, where after you're able to untap with it, you can do a lot of things better than Miracles can do once you've gotten Stoneforge online.
0: So I agree with you that the blue-white Stoneblade matchup against combo has been maligned in the past, and I think it's a lot better than people typically give it credit for. I think that... The matchup against my number three deck and your number two deck, which is Grixis Control, is just a really bad matchup.
1: You are sacrificing your Grixis Control matchup, which is still a bad matchup for Miracles, to be more positive against the rest of the field, in my opinion.
0: So I think it's a bad matchup for Miracles. I think it's an awful matchup for Blue-White. So I guess that's, that's sort of the distinction that I'm making there. And I do see what you're saying. They both have, you know, heavy basic mana bases, Blue, White, and Miracles. So it's really a question almost of your your threat package and your role assessment at that point.
1: And your soft counterspells. I don't think Miracles takes advantage of soft counterspells in the main deck as well as Stoneblade does. Stoneblade has been able to utilize Spellpierce, which in my opinion is going to be huge going into this field because of what my number one deck is. Obviously, your Grixis Control matchup is not positive, but I feel like against the rest of the field, I would rather be on Blue-White Stoneblade than Miracles.
0: That's a bold statement, man.
1: I mean, it's what I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. We're looking for hot takes. So yeah, we kind of spoiled it already. Your number two, my number three is Grixis Control. We've talked a lot about this deck. It's basically the only deck we really talked about during the challenge. Him to Turok, Colagon's Command, Baleful Strix, Snapcaster, full sets of both of those. And uh, Gurmag Angler, it can close games, it can control games. Him is the most reliable two-for-one that we have right now. And this deck really, I think it's going to be a force.
1: This deck, with its ability to play high-potency sideboard cards, great two-for-one situations in the main deck, and your ability to utilize card selection... To be able to gain value is one of the reasons why I think this is going to be the second most popular deck. Against the Delver, Infect, and Death and Taxes matchups, your removal suite combined with your card draw is enough to push it over. You're kind of weak to lands depending on how you build your mana base. But you have the sideboard options to fight through what I think is going to be the number one deck. And that's why I have it at number two. It's a deck that, whose play styles fit pro players. There's card selection, there's value, there's the ability to play a game without getting blown out and gain small incremental advantages as you go through. I think Grixis is going to be the second most popular deck at the Pro Tour.
0: Yeah, certainly all the things that you said is why I have it at number three. And, you know, it's sort of like the Jund deck with a lot more wiggle room because you get to add blue to it. You know, the typical Jund deck we think of in modern. So we've been teasing it for a while. Your number one deck, my number two deck, Sneak and Show.
1: This metagame at the Pro Tour is going to revolve around Sneak and Show. I think it's going to be the most popular deck. I think that with the card selection and the ability to put an A plus B combo on the table is going to lead a lot of extremely good players to play this deck. There are a small amount of things that people need to take into account when playing Sneak and Show. Pro players have the ability to sort of suss out what interaction their opponents have, and Sneak and Show is so rewarding to play in that environment. It is the most powerful combo deck, and it is one that a lot of people who might not be super experienced in Legacy can learn fairly easily. I think that all of the matchups that I said leading into what's going to be the most popular revolve around their Sneak and Show matchup and how much that deck is going to see play.
0: Yeah, and it's the only build right now. So we talked the decks that we talked about, Miracles, Grixis Control, they're very customizable to what you think that the metagame will be like. Now, Sneak and Show, I feel like it's the only objectively Tier 1 deck right now that has an agreed-upon best build. And that's something that's very tempting right now. So we we sort of crap on the deck a lot, you know, the Royal we sort of everyone craps on the deck. Because generally, you know, the the things that we say about it is it it has, like, a low, low ceiling and a lack of, like, interesting games. But no one, absolutely no one could possibly be objecting to it right now on power level.
1: And I think a lot of the people who crap on it, who call Sneak and Show players apes, they're not going to play that deck at the level that these pro players are. The amount of small edges that you can get just by using your cantrips early in the game with Sneak and Show is huge. And I think that if you get a bunch of great players on Sneak and Show, you are going to see that this deck has a ton of play. And it is really going to matter what your sideboard plans are and how the mapping for that works. You said that you thought that this was one of the decks that we had the most hammered out best list for. And I disagree. I think that the mirror plan and the sideboard plan for Sneak and Show have quite a bit of flexibility that we're going to see some changes in leading into this Pro Tour. And I think because the deck is so powerful, it is going to end up breaking out more from the field in this pro tour than it has already.
0: Yeah, I kind of agree with that. and I'm secretly hoping that maybe we can get show and tell banned off the back of this pro tour.
1: Now, before the Deathrite Shaman Probe ban, there was a Facebook post that was talking about what did we predict to get banned? And I actually said that if they ban anything, they are going to ban Deathrite and probe and grizzlebrand because grizzlebrand going unchecked could lead to a ruined format now reanimator has been kept in check but i believe Sneak and show is the best grizzlebrand shell and if you've ever played against it you will understand how powerful that card is and if you take grizzlebrand away from sneaking show we're talking about a completely different meta game but Sneak and show takes advantage of what I think is one of the most broken cards in Legacy. And we're going to see a lot of Grizzlebrand in that deck.
0: Yeah, maybe Grizzlebrand would be the more appropriate ban. And there were people talking about that, basically since it was printed, that this card is going to ruin the format. We saw the deck Tin Fins, I think, was based on the attempt to get Grizzlebrand banned in the first place.
1: But you don't you don't need all of those other cards around it when you can just play it in a show-and-tell shell. You get to show and tell in your Necropotence, where you get the cards immediately, and you have a 7-7 flying, life-linking body to go along with it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's broken. It's extremely powerful. I agree with you that at the serious pro level, people can do real damage with this deck. It gets a bad rep. It doesn't really deserve it. And you've kind of convinced me that there is more play in the sideboard. I really hadn't been thinking about the mirror. I've been looking at, you know, are they playing Defense Grid? Are they playing Blood Moon? You know, the cards that I typically care about in this matchup that, that I'm wondering if they're playing or not, I don't really think about the Sneak and Show Mirror much.
1: Sell me on why you think that Miracles will be the most played deck.
0: I think it's the most conservative choice, honestly. I think that a lot of people are going to fall back on it. And I think that if you were... Someone who played Legacy in your local scene, maybe you're, you're a very good player, you're a, a Pro Tour caliber player, you know somebody who maybe doesn't stick but shows up every now and then. I think that you were probably playing Miracles before the Top Ban, and you've had some experience with the deck. And now in the in the Legacy Challenge, we just saw seven Miracles decks in the top 32. There's no question that it's a competitive deck right now. And if you have the experience of playing Miracles, you can tailor it to you know what you think is best right now, whether that's Mentors, whether that's Teferis. I think that that's going to be really appealing to a lot of players.
1: I think it won't be because you never get free wins. You never get easy wins from playing Miracles. And I feel like if we take a look at what your top 10 most played decks are, that Miracles doesn't match up as well against the field as some of the other ones do. I think it's a very difficult deck to play optimally. And I think that the deck pre-top ban and post-top ban aren't even in the same conversation. But we're going to see, we're going to get to see this pro tour. And I am so excited to watch high-level legacy play get a large stage that i'm just i'm super pumped
0: bro i'm just pumped to see those packs get open man like the the arabian nights packs or whatever i don't
1: don't even know when that is Is Uh,
0: is that thursday night
1: i it doesn't even matter
0: i can't fucking
1: wait you can you can go watch the video on demands for it but the fact that they're using old school stuff to pump the game just, it sort of rubs me the wrong way. Like you are never going to get to open unlimited packs. You are never going to get to open Arabian Nights packs. There's going to be a bunch of people that come in from watching their favorite Hearthstone streamer, watch people open and draft and play in a relevant game. I know that it's going to be exciting to watch the packs open, but if you played back then, you know that 90% of those cards in those packs are trash, and watching people play limited matchups with janky, terrible, dumpy ass cards is going to be a net negative to the game.
0: Bro, I could not, I cannot possibly disagree with this more. And I feel like this is going to be the most unpopular opinion maybe that I ever have. But the money value of these cards is something that Magic has that other games don't have. Is this allure? And the cards—they just look better. The old cards, there's something magical about them. They get your your heart pumping. Like whether or not you have an emotional attachment to them, I feel like they just look more enticing than the new cards. And to see people open these cards and it's like, oh wow, this card has you know a twenty-five thousand dollar value. That's something that no other game can point to, and that's something that's alluring to people.
1: But that's not something that magic can point to anymore.
0: It's all, all that it can point to anymore is its history.
1: But that's not magic today. That's not magic that new players are going to come into. That's not the magic that is being sold. That's the idea. They're trying to sell you that look at these cards. Look at the value. Look at the history of this. But you're never going to get to touch that. Here's Dominaria. Here's M-19.
0: It's the allure that it exists, that it's out there. It's that magical, the history. This is, you're walking into the Hall of Fame of baseball or or football or whatever. You know, this, yeah, you're not going to play against O.J. Simpson. That was an awful example. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're not going to play against Joe Montana.
1: I think it's absolute horseshit that we're talking about Hall of Fame, and these cards and you have a Hearthstone streamer like Amaz who has recently started playing the game that Wizards is using to try to promote this idea that is absolute trash. I think the whole I think the whole idea of this is promotion is garbage. I think the Wizards handled it horribly and I'm still going to watch it, but this is not what you want to get new players into the game.
0: I think that's the worst take, man. The players that they chose, I feel like they chose a very marketable group of people. They pick people that are popular, that are successful, that are, I don't know, tall, diverse. Like all these marketing things that you're looking for in people that you want to be opening the cards that you want to own. I feel like this is a home run, and people are not seeing through it because of their proximity to the game, to the pro scene, to the pro players. And there are legitimate gripes you know pay the pros that sort of thing that yes those are legitimate concerns legitimate objections to this but i feel like this as you know a top billing event i think that it's going to draw the eyeballs
1: sure it's going to draw the eyeballs from enfranchised players who are already sucked in this is going to do almost nothing for that hearthstone player who tunes in because they're favorite Hearthstone streamer is playing this game that isn't even going to showcase the best of the game. This draft format is terrible. Most of these cards are terrible. This is going to be a bad viewing experience for new players watching. For the players who are already buying Magic product and playing a bunch, you don't need to promote things to those players. They are hooked. You don't need to. Of course this is going to be a great event for you, for me, for other people who play the game. For somebody coming in who's new, this event isn't going to hook them. All right, I'm going to tell
0: a quick quick story. My friend, this is my friend Jason, you, you don't know this guy, but I tried to get him to play Magic a couple times, I, I knew he would love the game, and I would show him the new cards we would play, and he would... Never really care, never be interested. Then one day I decided to try him with the Anthologies decks from back in, like, 98. And he fucking cared so much more about them. I feel like the old cards have this power, man. They have this, like, this staying power, this gravitas to them, where they just they mean something. And I feel like Wizards is kind of banking on that.
1: Okay, you might be right, and I might be totally wrong, but... Wizards isn't going to go back to a magic with those old cards. If you played back in the day, you knew that 90% of the cards that got opened were utter garbage. The game wasn't balanced. The game wasn't as fun or interactive as it is now. And today's game is better than it was back then.
0: I uh, strong disagree. Okay. <laughs> I th- I think that today's Legacy is better than 1.5 used to be in like 1997. Okay. For for a lot of reasons, but I feel like the game as a whole was a beautiful masterpiece back then, and you can fight me.
1: No, I mean, we don't we don't have to fight. I've played <laughs> I've played since back then, and if we're talking about standard which is what Wizards really makes their money on. And we talk about limited, which is the are the two main areas that Wizards is sort of focusing on. They are infinitely better than they were than back in the day.
0: I think standard or excuse me, I think limited is absolutely infinitely better now than it was then. I, I completely agree with you there. So yeah, that, that's not really concerning. If you're saying that this is a limited event and you're basing it on that, then I would, I would have to reluctantly agree with you about that. I think that standard back in like, post Necro, Necro, uh, Summer or whatever was actually pretty sweet.
1: You Urza's, Urza's block standard.
0: Okay, so I quit playing before Urza's block. So we're talking about I guess a small like window. Like Tempest.
1: There. You're talking about like the the Tempest block standard. Yeah. So slivers and wildfire emissary, white red, and all of those.
0: Yeah, man, blinking spirits. I'm talking about like that blue red gin deck. There, there was some sick shit going on.
1: Okay, I would, I would argue that while we we have a feeling of nostalgia for that <laughs> time, it, it is not better magic than we're seeing today. Also, right after you stop playing. Wizard fucked up magic so bad that they had to ban like 10 cards. <laughs> so, so
0: I've heard I've heard this, yeah. So you played all through this time?
1: I remember playing the Memory Jar, Lion's Eye Diamond, Stroke of Genius deck in a PTQ way back in the day. Wow. It was it was a fucking marvel. But that deck lasted a month before it was banned. And and that was that. Magic is a much better game now than it was back then, hands down.
0: I think objectively it's a better game, but I think they've made some questionable decisions regarding the the art and the the storytelling. I'm, I don't follow like the story at all, but like the way that the cards used to be, they evoked a certain emotion, and I feel like that's missing right now.
1: Yeah, cards card art card layout card frames they're more refined now back then you had that feeling of like nostalgia of a little kid opening a dragon and seeing a dragon on a card and being pumped about it and now you can open a dragon and it doesn't matter but the game separated from your feelings about the cards when you were a kid is still in a better place now and you can fight me over that
0: See, I don't think that it's nostalgia, though. I think that it's just basic human emotion. Like, you react to those old cards, and you, you don't feel anything when you look at these new cards. They're, they're very cookie-cutter, sort of CGI, mass-produced, and I feel like that they don't have any value to children because they can see that. This is fucking ridiculous that we're having this conversation right now. <laughs> it is.
1: It is. We don't have to—we we can stop. We can stop right now. <laughs> That's what it is. That's
0: what it is. All right, so get back to reality. So honestly, man, after thinking about this, like making this top 10 list that we made, thought about this for a few hours over the past few days, I'm honestly, I'm feeling so relieved that I'm not playing in this Pro Tour. Like, I would love the opportunity to play, and of course I'll play if I could, but it would be so much pressure to play with a team with this much on the line and in this metagame where I feel like the edge that I get in Legacy is almost entirely from metagaming, deck tuning... And sideboarding and you know, not not in game play at all. And I feel like right now, for me, that edge is as close to zero as it has been since Dig Through Time was legal. And if I had to make the choice right now, I think I would I'd play grixis control just because I don't see any of the top decks having like a severe leg up on the field and I'd rather be the one casting hims.
1: I'd I'd be playing Sneaky Show, Hands down.
0: Wow. That's that's bold man. You really like the deck.
1: I I think that you're underappreciating how much work these pro teams are putting in before the tournament. If your job is to play Magic full time, you are renting a house near the pro tour and you are playing two straight weeks of Magic. And you're going to be able to figure out a lot of things about your deck and about the format and Sneak and Show is target number 1 and i really think that it is clearly the best deck and everything else has to warp itself around beating it and even after they do that it is still going to be one of the top performing decks
0: i agree with basically all of what you're saying and the thing i was saying about casting hymns is basically alluding to that matchup because i feel like that's the other the other choice that i would have to be choosing between and i think i would rather be on the him side of that equation
1: okay i think there are, there are enough fluster storms that you can play where if your opponent's tapping their two mana to play a him you're going to be able to stop it and then kill them and that's where i'm at
0: so you think that sneak and show will potentially have a good grixis matchup
1: i'm saying that grixis is one of the decks that is going to be able to fight sneak and show the best but grixis doesn't put on a very good clock at all And Sneak and Show can take advantage of that. One of the reasons why I thought Grixis Delver was going to be one of the best decks to play is you get the clock plus the disruption. But if you're playing Grixis Control and you're trying to beat down with Snapcasters and Baleful Strixes, it's going to be a tough go to lock Show and Tell out. And I think that's that's really what this tournament is going to revolve around.
0: I totally agree with that assessment. And I was actually thinking a couple hours ago about... If you took the two Gurmags and two planeswalkers out of the Grixis control deck and put in four Delvers, is that was a viable deck.
1: I feel like the optimal build of Grixis Delver could have aspects like that. But it would probably a little bit it would be a little bit lower on the converted mana curve. Your Snapcaster mages wouldn't be there, and your K commands might not be there as well.
0: Yeah, agreed. it's super interesting, and I do think that If I had, you know, enough time to think about it, that Griggs Delver is probably still the deck I would land on.
1: Yep. You good to wrap things up?
0: I think so, man. Anything else?
1: Well, I wanted to thank all of our listeners. We've had a huge outpouring of support on social media and listens to our podcast, and I'm humbled by the number of people who have sent me messages and said how good of a job we're doing. I want to let everybody know that if you want to support us, you can subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and on Twitter, at Format,
0: And I'm at Ian18125.
1: And personally, you can get in touch with me at TSmileyMTG. And yeah,
0: it is really cool. We, we've sort of got a lot more listens than we were expecting at this point in the game.
1: Yeah, I think we fucked it all up with this episode. But hopefully people come back after the Pro Tour and we're like... You know what? Maybe they weren't that dumb, but I think we're good.
0: This was a fucking mess. In case this gets cut, my power went out in the middle of this episode. We're both pretty deep right now.
1: Yeah, oh, You. okay, so I should tell this to everybody. But last week when we were doing our recording, I went out and I got tequila and I got margarita mix. Unbeknownst to me, the margarita mix I got already had the alcohol in it. So I was mixing double shots of tequila along with the already alcoholic margarita mix. And if I was slurring my speech last week, I apologize for that.
0: Yeah, this was definitely my most beers consumed while casting. And so which margarita mix are we sponsored by?
1: Uh, by Landshark Margarita Mix. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Rock and roll.
1: All right. All
0: right, that's a wrap.